So we are in Matthew, and we are in Matthew 24 today. Uh, We've been working through Matthew very slowly. This is the longest I've ever spent in any book going through it. I usually go through them quite quickly. But because our church is in a process of reimagining ourselves, because our church is in a process of relaunching, we are taking this book slowly so that we get a real clear picture of who our king is. We live in a world where leadership matters more than ever, and we are doing a very poor job of understanding which leaders we should be following. And so as a result, we are spending a lot of time in Matthew to get a clear picture of Jesus, the king above all kings, the king that we should be following. And the one big lesson that we've been learning is that even though all of us are looking for a king who is the king that we want, the bully on our side, the strong person who can take our side against our enemies, Jesus consistently takes, these, takes the enemy's side. He tells us we're supposed to love our enemies. He tells us we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. He tells us we're supposed to deny ourselves daily and take up a cross and follow him as he dies for other people. Jesus is the guy who consistently tells us, no, if you're on my team, that doesn't mean I'm on your side. If you're in my family, that doesn't mean I'm fighting for you. What it means is we are fighting together for them. Jesus is consistently about the people who are the outsiders. And if you paid attention to last week or the weeks before, you saw some pretty clear pictures of Jesus speaking some pretty harsh words against the insiders. And maybe they would have made you mad if you were back then, if you lived back then. Today, I'm not going to get into all that because we've just got a very brief amount of time to hit the first 30 so verses of Matthew 24, and Matthew 24 is a very difficult passage, so we're going to pretty much jump into it right after I tell you a little bit of a story. Um, When I was a kid, I first learned about the rapture, and it scared me. Uh, It scared my sister more than me um, because she had a, a more of a guilt complex than I do, Um, I I tend to, anyway, I won't get into all that, but what would happen is that my mom and dad would go away for like dinner and we'd have babysitters or something. And if my mom and dad were late coming home, my sister's immediate reaction would be, oh my goodness, the rapture came and took them. And I always sort of wondered, you know, why it was that my sister thought that my parents were good enough that they could get sucked away in the rapture. And I understood that Jody did not deserve, you know, to go. But, and so it was, it was fine for me that she was still there. And, and she understood that she was supposed to be staying here. But why she would think that I would also be staying, you know, because, of course, I was the greatest little brother of all time. And in my own mind, not in hers. I guess it makes sense from her perspective. Anyway, she would get freaked out that the rapture had come and taken our parents and left us behind. And then the only time I ever encountered such fear was one day I was running away from my mom because she was trying to punish me for something, and I decided I was going to hide. And I found a place to hide in her own bedroom. Um, And I was hiding there, and it was dark, and I fell asleep. And after my nap, I woke up, and I went through the house, and my mom wasn't there. And I thought, okay, I was disobedient. You know, I was running away from my mom. The rapture came, and God decided to leave me, leave me behind. And then my mom came in the back door. She had just been in the garden. And so I was like, oh, hi, mom. 
And uh, she never punished me for whatever it was. I don't remember how that story ends. But here's the thing. If you were not raised in a Baptist household, maybe you don't even really know what rapture is. And so I'm going to give you sort of the Baptist basics of the end times. They show up in four steps. Here they are, the Baptist basics of the end times. What, what most Baptists think and, and what a lot of um, people in non-Catholic, non-mainline, you know, churches might think. Anyway, it starts with the rapture. The rapture is when God's Star Trek style beams people up off the planet. And they're there one minute, and then the next minute, they're just gone. They're, they've disappeared. They have been secretly snatched away. And then after the rapture comes, the whole world is in a state of chaos, and so the Antichrist shows up. He's the Antichrist because in the Bible there are a couple times when a particular person who's referred to using Antichrist as sort of an adjective, but then Antichrist in the Baptist doctrine becomes a noun, a proper noun, capital A, the Antichrist, and he establishes a new kingdom on earth that requires everybody to have the mark of the beast, which is something on their right hand or their forehead that gives them the ability to participate in society, including commerce and things like that. If you have been on Facebook and found that people were worried that the vaccine was going to have the mark of the beast in it or a microchip in it, a lot of that is connected to this doctrine. Anyway, so the Antichrist is going to show up and then the mark of the beast is going to be the thing that allows you to participate in commerce. And then the wrath of God shows up because God finally gets upset with the Antichrist enough that he is going to pour out wrath upon the earth and like a third of the people die from this thing and a third of the people die from another thing and, and it's pretty bad, okay? And so the wrath of God shows up. The mark of the beast is called tribulation one or the first half of the tribulation. And the wrath of God is called tribulation two or the second half or the great tribulation, depending on your context. And then the last thing that happens is that Jesus shows up and he establishes a kingdom on earth for a thousand years that is referred to as the millennial kingdom. And then there are a couple other things that that happen after that. But this is the gist of what we need to cover today because... Today we're looking in Matthew 24, and in Matthew 24, Jesus himself is going to tell us about the end times. Now, I need to remind you, Jesus was not a Baptist. He wasn't raised a Baptist. He didn't start the Baptist church. And even though I was raised a Baptist, and even though Converge is traditionally and historically a Baptist-formed organization... Jesus didn't form Converge, okay? It's, a, it's an organization that human beings formed to honor God in participation with God, and I think there's a lot of great stuff that we do. But Jesus was not a Baptist, just to clarify. And when Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 what's going to happen at the end, he reiterates everything on this list except for one, the rapture. There's nothing about the secret beam-me-away Scotty kind of rapture in what Jesus teaches us. And in fact, there is very little evidence for anything of the sort in the New Testament. Now, there are some passages that you can coerce into meaning that, but none of them on the surface say that very clearly. So it's important that we look at what Jesus has to say because in this section, Jesus is going to give us a picture of the end times that whether you think it is scary or not, it is definitely something he wants his followers to know. 
This is not Jesus talking to a bunch of antagonistic Pharisees like last week. This is Jesus talking to his own followers. Pick it up in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Jesus left the temple. Remember, he was just spending time in the temple accusing the Pharisees of being evil guides to the people. And now Jesus is fed up with them. He's leaving. He left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. What a weird thing that the disciples would come up to Jesus after he's leaving the temple. He's just been all in the Pharisees' faces. Woe is you to the Pharisees. And now he's leaving the temple, and the disciples are like, wow, this is a really pretty building, isn't it? It's a weird thing for them to do, but they're doing that. They're saying, Jesus, look at this building. And then Jesus, verse 2, do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That isn't Jesus saying that, you know, one of these days the temple's going to crumble like all buildings crumble. That was Jesus saying one of these days people are going to attack the temple and the stones will be thrown down. They will be intentionally destroyed. Jesus is making a prediction that the temple will be destroyed. Now for a Jewish person, that is, the, that is the one thing you can't fathom because God lives in the temple. From the Jewish perspective, God lives in the temple. And why would God ever let his temple get destroyed? And Jesus says, now it's going to happen. Well, they don't have a follow-up. They keep walking. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is uh, like you know, a significant distance away from Jerusalem. So they've walked in silence quite a ways. They get to, get to the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting, Jesus is sitting down there privately. It says, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is our question. We always want to know. Jesus, give us the details about when. I remember when I was a kid, there were all kinds of books that were being written that tried to estimate when Jesus was going to come back again. The most famous one was 1984. Not the one that you're thinking of. There's another 1984. The, uh, there was a guy who wrote um, a book called, I think it was called The Late Great Planet Earth, and he was talking about how Jesus was going to come back in 1984. And so it's it just, I think it was 84. Maybe I'm getting the, Huxley, the, other, the books mixed up. Anyway, there was a guy in the 80s who said Jesus is coming back right now, and I kid you not, when Jesus didn't come back, he re-released the book, changing the date two years into the future, said, I got the map wrong. It's really going to be then. And then the book was re-released. And there were guys on the radio who kept changing their dates every few years. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, this is just, it was scary to me. When is Jesus coming back? And I was excited and I was scared. And there were all these books and I and my friends were watching all these TV shows with all these Christian preachers analyzing the Bible passages to try to decode all the predictions so that they could find out when Jesus was going to come back. I'm just in the same place as the disciples. The disciples were like, Jesus, tell us when. Give us some details here. When's it going to happen? How long do we have to wait? What's interesting, though, is that Jesus completely ignores the question they're asking to teach them the answers he wants them to have. And Jesus gives them seven things they need to know about the end times. In this passage, here are seven things that you need to know about the end of the world. Verse 4, Jesus answered, watch out. 
that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. When I was a kid, I remember watching these videos about guys analyzing the news and they're saying there's an earthquake over here and there's a famine over here and there's pestilence over here and there's a plague over here. Well, we are literally living in a global pandemic. We just had another earthquake in Haiti and uh, there's wars going on like right now in Afghanistan and all over the place. And so like I could list off every single one of these things and I'd be like, boy, howdy, it's right now. And when I was a kid, they were happening. And the point of all the shows I was watching is all those shows were saying, it's happening right now. Jesus could come back at any moment. It's almost here. But Jesus' point, did you, did you notice? Jesus' point in verse 4 was, don't be deceived. You're going to hear of all these tragedies. But the tragedies are only the beginning. The tragedies aren't the, aren't the end. They're just the beginning. He said, you're going to hear of all this stuff. Don't be alarmed. It's going to happen. When you hear about all this stuff going on, that's just, you know, part of the process. Life is going to do that. It's the beginning of the birth pains, which means something is happening later. And for any one of you women who has given birth, I haven't personally experienced, but my assumption is that when the birth pains start, you think it's pretty bad, but it gets worse. I haven't personally experienced it, but that's my assumption. And uh, Jesus is saying all these things that we're experiencing right now, they're birth pains, the beginning of them. That's a little scary, okay? Don't get me wrong. There's something worse coming. Um, that's like when the doctor tells you you're at four centimeters and you think, well, I, anyway, let's just keep going. Verse 9, he says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to see false leaders. You're going to see people claiming that something is going on. You're going to see betrayal. You're going to see fraud. You're going to see all these things, but don't fall away. Persecution, betrayal, these fraud things, they're all to be expected. Listen, I know you and I haven't experienced the kind of persecution that leads to death. In fact, a lot of us in the United States claim that any time a person looks at us funny, that's Christian persecution. Or we'll say something really offensive on Facebook, and then we get a few negative things back, and we claim that that's Christian persecution. That I was just speaking the truth. I was just, I was just standing up for Jesus, and other people are attacking me, and therefore I'm being persecuted. No, no. 
That is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something far worse. He's talking about the kind of persecution where someone wants you dead and does it. Where the government and all the governments of the world hate you simply because you have attached yourself to the name Jesus. And where other Christians betray you. And where leaders pretend to be on your side but are actually not. Now, we're still just at the beginning, right? We're still just at the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is like, don't be deceived. Tragedies are only the beginning. Number two, don't fall away. Even though a lot of stuff is going to get really hard, don't fall away because all these things are expected. Jesus knows it's coming. You should know it's coming too. But let's look at the next one. Look at verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is one of those verses that uh, prompts a sense of urgency towards the mission that Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us a mission to spread the message of him throughout the whole world. And right here in this verse, he says, listen, the message is going to go to all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, a lot of times people are like, we got to send out more missionaries. we got to get the message out farther because the sooner we get the message out, the sooner Jesus can come back again. And that is a good motivation because Jesus told us he won't come back again until at least that is done. But this is the point Jesus was actually trying to make. You see, the point he was actually trying to make begins with this idea that you and I might be discouraged. We're told that there's going to be all this persecution. We might be discouraged. If the church is going to be filled with betrayers, and if it's going to be filled with fraud, and if it's going to be persecuted from the outside, you might want to throw up your hands and say, well, there's just no point in trying. Well, there's just no point in keeping this thing up anymore. You might lose interest. You might lose hope. And Jesus says, don't. Stay hopeful, because guess what? We're going to win. The message is going to be preached. The mission is going to be accomplished. That is a guarantee promise from Jesus. He says, I am going to make sure that this message gets through all of the world, even as a testimony to all the nations. Remember, all the nations that hate you. This is going to be the message that's a testimony to the whole world. It will reach the ends of the earth. Don't treat this as just a point of urgency, although it can be used that way, but view it mostly as a point of encouragement. Keep going. Stay hopeful because the message is going to make it all the way. Pick it up in verse 15 now. Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. By the way, that phrase right there, let the reader understand, it's either in red, Jesus is saying, let the person who read Daniel understand what I'm now saying, or it shouldn't be written in red, and it's Matthew saying, you reader right now, pay close attention to what Jesus is about to say. Either way, it eventually gets to you and me, where we're like, we need to pay attention to what Jesus says in light of what Daniel said. 
Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Jesus says, listen, there's going to come a moment called the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel wrote about it, and when that happens, get out of town, bub. Run. Just get somewhere else because you, can't, you don't have time to go back and get anything. Now, here's, here's the question. What does he mean by that? This is the thing that's been debated for many, many centuries. And so the only recourse we have is to do what we've done throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. Every time in the book of Matthew we come to a place where Matthew is quoting the Old Testament, we've gone to the Old Testament and looked at it. And so let's do that again. Now it is Matthew quoting Jesus who's quoting Daniel, and so let's go back into Daniel. And in Daniel, there are three, maybe four references to the abomination that causes desolation. There are three references that use the word abomination, one reference that uses the word rebellion. And so we're going to spend our time looking at the three references that Daniel says that refer to the abomination that causes desolation, okay? So pay attention. This is a little bit of schoolwork. I know you can handle it, but we're going to look at some Daniel passages here, and uh, I'll try to explain them as well as I can, and hopefully they will give us some insight into what Jesus means and what Jesus wants you to know about the age to come. Here it is. We'll put it up. Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to start, verse 25 through 27. Know and understand this. And this is uh, Daniel writing down a vision that he has received from an angel. And so the angel is speaking, Daniel is writing it. The angel says, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. Which, by the way, I just got to pause there and say, we don't know what the sevens are. They might be years. They might be something else. They might be metaphorical because there's a secret we're going to find in just a couple passages that will make sure everything stays unclear. Okay, but we'll get, we'll get there in just a little bit. He says, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Huh, a prophecy about an anointed one who's put to death. Did you know that the anointed one in Hebrew is the word Messiah, which sometimes when it gets into the Greek gets translated as anointed one in Greek, which is the word Christ. Anyway, uh, an anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come after the anointed one is killed, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Keep going. He says, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. Let me see simplify it for you. Daniel is saying just a few key things. Here's the journey of what's happening in the book of Daniel. Number one, there's going to be an order to rebuild Jerusalem. After the order to rebuild Jerusalem, then someone called the anointed one is going to show up, but that anointed one is going to be killed. 
Then, after the anointed one is killed, an evil, deceiving ruler is going to show up. That evil, deceiving ruler is going to set up something in the temple called an abomination. That abomination that causes desolation is a big phrase that says, something God hates that ruins people. Abomination is something God hates. Desolation, it ruins people and it ruins things, okay? So this guy is going to set up in the temple something God hates and it's going to result in the ruin of some people and then the end. He doesn't tell us what the end is or what the end looks like. He just says, then the end. So whatever the end is comes after that. Okay, so that's the summary of Daniel 9. Let's now look at Daniel 11. Daniel 11 says this in verse 29. At the appointed time, again, this is an angel speaking to Daniel in a vision. This is a different vision. It's a second vision. It's a separate vision. At the appointed time, he, the he in this verse is referring to someone in the previous verses called the king of the north. So there's a king of the north who is the one doing a whole bunch of bad stuff. And the king of the north will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress." and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. Now, to summarize this, a few more bullet points. In this one, the king of the north fails against the king of the south. The king of the north goes against the king of the south, and he fails to win. He's so mad that on his way back north, he stops off at the temple and sets up an abomination in the temple. And then there are people who resist him and are persecuted. And then the end will come. Okay. There's one more time Daniel refers to the abomination that causes desolation. All right, hang in there. We're going to Daniel 12. It says this in verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. This is not in quotation marks because this is Daniel writing it himself. Daniel is now talking to the angel and he says, Hey, angel, I heard what you said, but I don't get it. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Just keep walking, Daniel, because I'm not going to tell you. It's all locked up and sealed. One of these days, we're going to hit the end, and then you can see. But until then, and keep going. It says, many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, 
But those who are wise will understand. Eventually they will. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. And as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and at the end of your days you will rise to receive, at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay. We are not supposed to understand the details. Daniel just said to the angel, I don't understand. The angel says, sounds about right. The angel says, that's exactly my point. These words were given to you, but the meaning is rolled up and sealed until the day of the end. And then the angel does this weird thing. The angel gives him more information. He says, oh, and something I didn't tell you before is that between the abomination that causes desolation and, the, and all that stuff and the end, there's going to be 1,290 days. And so you're going to be blessed if you last all 1,335 days. What happened to the extra 40-some days? Where'd they come from? It's like literally the angel right there in the last thing he said to Daniel is just another wrench in the works, another, here's another thing to don't understand, here's another thing to I can't really get, and I kid you not, I firmly believe this is exactly the point. We are not supposed to understand the details because God gave through the angel to Daniel some things that when they happen, we will be like, oh. But until they happen, we will be like, oh. And when they happen, we will know, oh, 1290 and 1335. I get it now. But until that happens, we won't get it. So the first thing is we're not supposed to understand the details. The second thing I want you to notice is that there are at least two, probably multiple, abomination events. There was one in chapter 9 that involved an anointed one getting killed. There was one in chapter 11 that involved a king getting defeated by another king and then throwing a tantrum at the temple. Both of them involved the temple. Both of them involved setting up an abomination. Both of them involved the sacrifices being stopped. But they have completely different contexts in every other respect. So there are at least two, maybe more. Oh, and there's one more thing. In every one of these accounts, the faithful get persecuted. The faithful get persecuted. So Jesus, he says, let the reader understand what Daniel was saying. Hopefully now you have a little picture of what Daniel was saying, but I want to give you a couple extras that Jesus knew. A couple extras that Jesus knew that um, Daniel didn't know. First of all, Jesus knew that Daniel chapter 11 was fulfilled 168 years B.C. In 168 B.C., a Greek leader named Antiochus rumbled through the middle of Israel on his way to attack Egypt and failed. And on his way back up through Israel, just decided he was going to ransack the place. And so he went to the temple, 
He set up a statue to the god Zeus, claimed that he was now there, that Antiochus was now the representative of Zeus and that they should worship him. And I believe at the time sacrificed a pig on the altar, desecrating the temple. 168 B.C. Jesus, when he says this, he knows it's already happened. At least chapter 11 did. Almost exactly the way Daniel describes it in chapter 11. The problem is that Jesus knows that he himself is the anointed one, and so Jesus knows that chapter 9 hasn't happened yet. Chapter 11 happened 168 years before, but chapter chapter 11 happened earlier, but chapter 9 still hasn't happened yet. And so Jesus is now looking at them and he's saying, it's still coming. I am the anointed one. The anointed one is going to be killed. Another leader is going to rise up. That leader is going to desecrate the temple. And oh, by the way, did you remember Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed? At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed. That actually happened in 69 A.D. Now, the disciples didn't know that. Matthew didn't know that. In fact, we know that Matthew didn't know that when he wrote this because if he knew it, he would have said, oh, and by the way, Jesus' prophecy came true. But Matthew never said Jesus' prophecy came true. And so therefore, we know the book of Matthew was written before the prophecy came true. And therefore, we know the prophecy was actually a prophecy. Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. In 69, it happened. And when it happened, would you like to know that the emperor who destroyed the temple set up an abomination in the temple just like Antiochus had done before? Chapter 9 got fulfilled in 69 AD. This is amazing. Except for one little extra detail. The days. You see, at the end of Antiochus's thing in the 168 BC, 1,290 days later, nothing special happened. When the temple was destroyed in 69 AD, 1,290 days later, nothing special happened. 1,335 days later, nothing special happened. In other words, that little piece of the prophecy from Daniel chapter 12, that little piece of the prophecy still hasn't happened yet. That extra period of time before the official end has actually hit. That thing hasn't happened yet. And so therefore we have to conclude that Jesus is still talking about a third time for this whole abomination thing to happen. And Jesus himself gives us a hint. Look at the next verse in Matthew 24. Verse 21 says this, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled. Again, Jesus' point there is to say, listen, the bad thing that is going to come is worse than all previous bad things. And when it comes, it's going to be the last bad thing. There will be no bad things after that bad thing. So that means, let's just be honest, no matter how bad things have been in human history, there's a future moment where it's going to be so much worse. Really encouraging, isn't it? Okay, here it is. Number four, prepare yourselves. The great tribulation is coming. Some great trial, 
Tribulation is just a a fancy word for trial, a, a time of hardship. Some great trial is coming in the future. Prepare yourselves. Jesus is like, it's going to get really bad. And I mean really bad. It's never been this bad, and it will never be worse. But we know it's still in the future because we've seen some pretty bad stuff in the past, right? And all the bad stuff that we've seen in the past is kind of surpassed by some of the bad stuff we see today. And so in other words, there's nothing in the, ba- nothing in the past that can take credit for being the worst of all time. So that means the worst of all time still has to be in the future. And that's what Jesus said, get ready for it. But lest you be super, super sad or scared about what is coming, Jesus also wants you to know three things that should encourage you. Keep reading. Verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Elect is a word that just means chosen. For the sake of those who are part of God's family, for the sake of those who are adopted, for the sake of those who are chosen, God is going to cut those days short. Jesus says, endure. God will cut it short to spare his people. Endure. Hang in there. Hang in there for just a little bit longer. Because when it gets really bad, just hang in there for just a little while longer because God is going to cut it short to spare his people. To be clear, he is not going to cut it short to spare every individual member of his people. Jesus and Daniel both say that individual people will be killed, that persecution will touch individual people, betrayal will touch individual people but that God will not let the entire thing be destroyed. For the sake of his people on the planet, he is going to cut the days short. It's good news. I mean, it's not the greatest news, but it's, it's good news. And then, keep going. Verse 23 says this, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, just don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. Keep going, verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man wherever there's a carcass. There the vultures will gather. In other words, when you see a dead thing, you also see vultures. It's always the case. If you see vultures, you know you've got a carcass. Anyone from miles around can see the vultures in the sky. They can see the vultures on the ground, so they know there's a dead thing there. If you're wondering if there's a dead thing there, you don't have to wonder too long because there's clear signs about it. There's clear evidence about it. And Jesus says, when I come back, we're talking lightning bolts, baby. When I come back, we're talking it's going to be obvious. Don't believe it if someone says, oh, Jesus came back secretly. Don't believe it if someone says, oh, no, Jesus is actually sneaking out in the Middle East somewhere. He's starting a little band of people. Don't believe it. Jesus is the guy who dies and rises again. He's the guy who predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off. And he says, I'm not coming back until I'm coming back all the way. I'm not coming back until I'm coming back in a way that just absolutely blows your socks off. I'm not coming back unless it looks like lightning. Jesus is coming back in a way that's going to be obvious. The whole world will see from the east to the west. 
Lightning doesn't talk about how fast it's going to happen. Lightning talks about how brilliant it's going to be. Let's finish it up, verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That sounds like distress to me. (laughs) Jesus says it's going to happen after the distress that the stars and the moon and the sun are just going to stop doing their job. That happens after the distress. Sounds like distressing enough to me, but keep going. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. This is Jesus saying, rejoice. Because when I come back, I'm going to gather my own to me. When I come back, it is going to be obvious, it's going to be glorious, it's going to be amazing, and I'm going to gather people to me. And this is the verse that changed my whole perspective on that whole rapture thing. Because the whole rapture thing says that someday Jesus is just going to sneak me off the planet and no one's going to know and it's going to be something that confuses a bunch of people. But Jesus himself says, when I come back, everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know it. The people who are on my side are going to get gathered into glory. The people who are not on my side are going to cry their eyes out. Jesus says it's coming, and it's coming big. And so, this whole idea of there being some secret thing that happens, and then later on, Jesus does his real showing up. It's just not found in what Jesus says. But what Jesus does say is simultaneously more scary and simultaneously more glorious. Listen, the truth of the matter is, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you will face hardships. You will face the minimal hardships that we face every day in our society. But you and I will not be exempt from the massive hardships that Christians elsewhere in the world are facing right now. You and I, because we live in this bubble of a society, are not going to be in such pristine comfort forever. There is coming a day, and maybe you and I won't be alive at the time, but there is coming a day when the abomination that causes desolation is going to show up for a third time somehow. And when it does, even the people who are believers are going to face the hardest times the world has ever seen. But don't lose heart. If you're around before then, prepare yourself for that kind of endurance. But if you're not around then, then you, you get out early, I guess. But if you have to go through it, if any of us have to go through it, don't lose heart because Jesus is coming. And he's going to come in glory. And he's going to reward his followers. And this idea of what Jesus has just said perfectly lines up with what the Apostle Paul taught too. The most famous passage on the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me just read it to you. This is how we end. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. This is not a quiet thing that is going to happen. 
with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is just writing what Jesus already said. There is no future moment that you have to worry about or wonder about. There is only the progression of history going through time where evil people continue to be evil and righteous people have to stand up in the midst of that evil to do what honors Jesus, to look like Jesus. And if we look enough like Jesus, one of these days the world is going to hate our guts and they will try to fight back. But don't you worry. Hold on. Stand firm. Because Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, it will be glorious. Write this down. Persecution is in our future. But so is glorious reward. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the final judgment and what happens after the end of the earth. And what happens sort of at the end of the human soul. But today, it's about the journey that we are on towards that moment when Jesus comes again. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of theories and a lot of ideas. And I just want to give you the permission to ignore it all. I want to give you the permission to say, hey, Daniel didn't understand it. Hey, the disciples didn't understand it. Jesus didn't explain it to the disciples. I give you permission to just say, I don't know. 1290, 1335, no clue. I give you permission because the angel gave Daniel permission. He said to Daniel, just go your way. Keep doing life. When you die, you die. And then one of these days, we'll bring you back up and tell you all the answers. One of these days, Jesus is going to come back and we'll have all the answers. Until that day, our job is to walk in faithfulness. Look more like him this week than you did last week. Express Jesus more clearly this week than you did last week. And recognize that the people that you bump into who don't know Jesus yet, one of these days, are either going to be experiencing glorious awareness of Jesus with you or incredibly mournful awareness of Jesus apart from him. And you and I are the ones who can intervene in their lives to help them experience the glory that is to come, even though the hardships might be here and now. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.